Today's word comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. The call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good reading. Thank you so much. Let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask now that as we sit at your feet, that you would be so faithful in speaking to us, your beloved children, ready to receive, ready to learn, ready to be taught all the things that lead to life and to flourishing. Father, we are living in a world that is constantly trying to capture our attention, that is trying to get us to listen to their understanding of truth. But Father, we want this time to be the place where we listen the most attentively and most humbly. And so, Father, would you help us to receive everything by taking apart all that is discouraging and distracting us at this present moment, and that we would now be fully attentive to what you have to say, have to say to us. We pray, Father, that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So, to set the stage for today's message, I want to do a little thought experiment. Think back in your life 10 years ago. That would be 2010. Think back where you were at, what you were doing, who you were back then. And if you're having a hard time, let me give you some current events. A massive earthquake just hit Haiti, killing over 160,000 people just within one day. The WHO just declared publicly that the swine flu was no longer a global epidemic. Iron Man 2 is running into theaters, and the most unthinkable thing happened. Simon Cowell left American Idol for good. You got it? Good. Here's the follow-up. Think back on what you were hoping would have happened now, but sadly, for whatever reason, hasn't happened. Think back on the hopes and the dreams that you were expecting would be here now in 2020, but sadly is not. Can you think of it? If you can, you are living what has been called the reality gap. The reality gap. You know, it's that thing where you have a situation where you had a certain vision of your life on how it could turn out, but now today, it's more like a fairy tale that basically has no way of ever materializing in your life. That's the reality gap. And it's a reality that so many people live, including many of those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And the question that I want to ask is, as followers of Christ, how do you and I live faithfully 
in the midst of living in the reality gap? How do we live with the empty space in our lives that we wish were filled with marriage, with children, with a specific job, or just any job for that matter? How? We're beginning today our annual vision sermon series that we do at the beginning of every new year. And what that means is we take our vision statement and we look at it piece by piece, taking it apart so that we can finally understand what we're about as a church, who we're trying to be as a church, and what we're trying to do as a church. And given that I shared with you our revised vision statement a couple of weeks ago at our congregational meeting, I'm sure I don't have to share any of that with you, right? But just in case you missed out, here is our vision statement in full, and it goes like this. NCF exists to grow up in the gospel in order to go out with the gospel through members that flourish Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation by displaying their primary allegiance to Jesus, cultivating genuine relationships within their social networks or oikos to share Jesus, and finally wisely engaging the culture to promote an informed and inviting community of Jesus. This is our vision statement and as you notice the beginning part of it it starts with a mandate a mandate that we are to flourish queens new york the world and the next generation and so today i want to park it right there on that word flourish because if you look it up in any standard dictionary it'll spit back to you words like success and growth but what i want to challenge you today is to think of the word flourish differently to think it more in terms of how the bible defines that word and you know how the bible defines the word flourish It means to bless, to bless. I want to talk about how we here at NCF are all about being a blessing to the people around us. And not just those here, but those outside of these walls, those that God has brought into your life. I want to talk about what it means to be a blessing. Why? Because as we'll come to find that the Bible teaches that in order for us to have a fulfilling life, even though we are living in that reality gap, whatever gap that may be, if you really want to live a life of fulfillment, you can only do so in the reality gap if you make it your mission in life to be a blessing. That's the main idea of today's message. That's the big takeaway. And so to convince you of that, three things I want to share with you today. First, let's talk about submitting to God's authority submitting to God's authority, and then let's talk about the promise from submitting to God's authority, and finally, the way to submitting to God's authority. Submitting to God's authority, the promise from submitting to God's authority, and the way to submitting God's authority is how we can be a blessing even though we're living in a life that is known as the reality gap. So let's begin by with the first point, submitting to God's authority. Read again with me verse 1 of our passage where it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here our passage begins with God showing up in the life of a man named Abram. And for you Sunday school veterans, you would know who this guy is. This Abram fella is none other than Abraham, the first ever patriarch to the nation of Israel. And from what we can tell, this encounter with God seems to be one of many that Abraham would have. Prior to this, according to Joshua 24, verse 2, Abraham was a worshiper of the Mesopotamian moon god, Nana. Nana. Now, (coughs) that's weird, but... When you have that context in mind and you consider this first encounter, you might find it a little weird. Because think about it from Abraham's perspective. Here is this being, this deity, the only true God coming up to him and starts telling him orders, right? Just starts ordering around by giving him commands. Isn't that kind of odd? Because in normal day-to-day existence, we would never imagine a scenario where a complete stranger would come up to you and start barking orders and that would be okay, right? 
There's nothing that we can think of, but I can. Some of you may not know this about me, but when I was in college, I was in the Navy ROTC program. A midshipman, they called me. And prior to the beginning of my freshman year, I, along with my fellow midshipmen at UNC Chapel Hill, had to go for two weeks away at the Naval Air Base in Norfolk, Virginia. And I remember the moment I stepped off that bus, and I mean the moment I stepped off the bus, a massive hulking dude by the name of Gunnery Sergeant Jackson started yelling in my face, move, 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 go, 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 get your stuff, get your stuff. I was like, whoa. Yes, sir. I immediately obeyed. And for the next two weeks, I followed his commands because I knew that whatever the gunny commanded me to do, I was to do it. Why? Because as his chevrons on his lapel conveyed to me, he was a person of authority over me. And that same idea is being conveyed in verse 1. When God shows up to Abraham, there's no words of introduction. There's no fanfare. There's no small talk. There is simply command. Because by definition, that is who God is. God is the one in command because God is the ultimate authoritative one. I mean, how else can you explain this command that he gives him to leave his homeland, to leave his family, to a place amongst a people that he's never heard? I am so sorry, guys. I totally did not realize Austin was there. Please forgive me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should know better. I have five babies, and I'm always yelling at my kids. That was my fault. Please forgive me for that. Oh, I feel so terrible. But anyway, oh, forgive me, Jesus. Um, otherwise, how could we understand God giving this command to leave his home, to leave his family, to a place amongst the people that he has no idea being? Now, Christian, let me ask you an honest question. If God showed up and gave you this degree of a command, how would you respond? Honestly, would you immediately obey what you would come to find Abraham doing? Or would you hesitate? Would you be resistant? Would you downright disobey God? I think it goes without saying that we're living in a day and age where submitting to any authority, let alone God's authority, is not only rare, but seen as very suspicious of anyone actually doing. Consider these words from former Moody Bible president, Dr. Joseph Stoll. He writes this, quote, Society long ago scrapped any thought of the validity of managing life according to any external authority. Self-determination and self-actualization are now held to be inalienable rights. In fact, the general consensus today is that if you try to impose any kind of moral authority, you are suspected of manipulation and control. This affirmation of moral independence as a primary value affects our attitude toward every relationship and activity of life, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying that most people today have this response to where if anyone tries to assert any kind of authority is meant by suspicion and mistrust. And of course, it's so understandable why people would feel this way because for generations upon generations, so many institutions and authority figures that have governed society in the past have disappointed, has disenchanted, and has been dishonest to so many people. Whether you're talking about the government, whether you're talking about the education system, whether you're talking about your own home, and yes, even if you're talking about the church. 
So often and so many have been wounded and broken to the point where people are so skeptical and cynical about anyone asserting any kind of authority. So it's so understandable as to why people are very dubious to the idea of even submitting to God's authority. But here's the thing. Just because something is understandable doesn't make it right. Consider again verse 1 as I read it to you. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The fact that God commands Abraham to leave his home, which included mom and dad, and for an ancient Middle Easterner, that, those were the most trustworthy people in his life, right? And God commands him to leave. And by doing such, isn't God making an implicit, very bold statement about himself in relation to Abraham and really in relation to everyone? And what is that implication? It's the implication that there is no one who is more for Abraham. There is no one who loves as much for Abraham. And there is no one who is as committed to the flourishing of Abraham than God himself. I mean, how else can you explain his follow-up to the command of verse 1 to the words he says in verse 2? Listen again. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is God's explanation to Abraham as to why he should obey God. Because it's through obedience, Abraham, that you will flourish in life. And folks, we see this same explanation scattered throughout the pages of Scripture to where if you obey God, God will always respond of wanting to flourish you. Why? Because his posture towards you, his heart towards you, is always one that is for you, that is committed to you, that loves you with such extravagant love. When you obey, you will flourish because the God you obey deeply, cherishingly loves you. You see, even though from Abraham's standpoint, God, in his mind, was a stranger at this first encounter. From God's standpoint, he has known and he has loved Abraham way before Abraham knew of him. And we see that same posture and attitude towards every single one of you sitting in this room. Two passages of scripture to verify. First, Psalm 139. It starts, You, Lord, made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You washed me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 15. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name in the palm of my hands. Did you see it? God, the ultimate authoritative one, is for you. He is so for you to where every command he gives, every prohibition he imposes, every boundary he sets up to where you can't cross is always and only motivated for the flourishing of your life as an expression of his affectionate, loving desire for you. That is the point. He loves you extravagantly. And by obeying him, you are telling him, Lord, I accept, I receive your love for me. So, putting all this together, 
How do we live faithfully even though our lives are filled with reality gaps? The Bible would say, first and foremost, you must remember, you must reminisce, you must ruminate over God's extravagant love. If you want to be able to have the desire to bless others, even though you feel your life is filled with so many reality gaps that it hurts, it must start with you constantly reminding and reviving the conviction that God is for you, that God deeply cherishes you and loves you to the full. And when you do, when you take that step of faith and you say, yes, Lord, you love me, God promises a particular blessing will descend upon you that will enable you to be a blessing. What do I mean? To explain, I go to my next point, <clears throat> the promise from submitting to God's authority. Read again verse 2, but less time. this time let's include verse 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, God makes a promise to Abraham, specifically a promise that's in response to Abraham's acknowledgement of God's love for him, evidenced by his willingness to submit to God through his obedience. But here's the thing. Most people assume that the promise that God is making is what we just read in the first half of verse 2, of making him a great nation and giving him a great name, which is another way of saying making him very, very famous. But if we look a little closer, we'll see there's actually embedded in those promises a deeper, more significant promise that God wants us to understand because that's really the most important promise that we need to grasp. Let me explain. Let's say you are a cynical person. You're a half-glass-empty person, and you are just so burned and so bitter, maybe because you have a lot of reality gaps going on in your life, and you read this passage. Chances are, if you're that way in that state of mind, and you read our passage, you'll probably interpret God in a very negative way. I would suggest you probably would see him as kind of like those crazy celebrity parents who are obsessed with making their children rich and famous that causes them to be narcissistic, self-absorbed, little monsters and then if you read the previous chapter before this chapter 11 you might even see God in a worse light by adding to that idea of him being a hypocritical God and you're like why how so what happens in Genesis 11 read for yourself we're starting in verse 1 it says this the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary when the people moved eastward they found a plain in Shinar and settled there they said to one another come let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly they had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar then they said come let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves otherwise we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building and the Lord said if as one people all sharing a common language they've begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them come let's go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other so the Lord scattered them from across the face of the entire earth and they stopped building the city that is why its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the entire world and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth Notice the parallels in this passage along with the one that we're studying today in Genesis 12. You have a group of people who want to be a great nation. That's what not being scattered across the face of the earth means. They want to be a great community, and they want to be famous. They want to make a name for themselves. And how does God react? How does he respond? He punishes them by scattering them across the earth and confusing their language. What gives, God? Why are you so upset at the people of Babel for doing what you say you're going to do for Abraham if he follows you? You see, 
how a cynic could see that and like, man, this God is so hypocritical. He's demanding of people to not do what he himself does. And not only that, he does look like that crazy celebrity parent who can't stand the idea of his kid making it on their own without them. This God must be sinister. No, that's not who God is. Because of one phrase embedded in this promise to Abraham that is missing in the purposes of the mind of the people of Babel. It's the phrase found in verse 2 of chapter 12, so that you, Abraham, will be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing. Do you know why God was so angry at the people of Babel? He was so angry because they didn't want to do what God wanted Abraham to do. And that is to be a blessing so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know how I know this? Because of what they say amongst themselves in verses 3 to 4 of Genesis 11. Let me read it again. Then they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top reaching to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. You know, for some reason, every time I read those verses, I envision the people of Babel being a bunch of snobby, yuppie gentrifiers wanting to go into a specific neighborhood because they think they can improve it and make it better. Now, by saying that, I'm not bashing gentrification. I know it's a very hot topic. There are some pros and cons that people argue. But I do have a problem with the neighborhood that these people of Babel are trying to, quote, unquote, improve because which neighborhood are they trying to get into? Heaven, right? The realm of God. Here are a bunch of morals thinking they can enter into God's real estate and make it better than what God is capable of, and that they could rule the realm and through it the whole world because they're more capable than God? I don't know about you, but when I think of that being the mindset of the people of Babel, I don't imagine that they have on their agenda of wanting to be a blessing unto others rather than, rather, rather than to be a blessing to themselves. And that right there is why God was so angry at the people of Babel. That is why he was so upset. That's the crucial difference. See, when God tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a great name and into a great nation, it's for greater purpose. And it's not so that Abraham could relish and enjoy the blessings for himself. No, it's so that he could go out and share the abundance of blessing to those around him. That was Abraham's responsibility. And guess what, Christian? That is your responsibility as well. But the only way that's going to happen is if you, like Abraham, have a polar opposite mindset to the mindset of these people of Babel, these Babylonians, right? The ancestors of the Babylonians. And you know what mindset it is? It's the mindset of humility, the mindset of humility. And to give you a clear understanding of what this mindset is, consider these words from Pastor Tim Keller where he writes, quote, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less, end quote. This is what a humble mindset is. And guess what? This is the promise that God says will be yours if you choose to submit to his authority. In other words, this is the gift. This is the blessing. This is the promise God says he will give to you 
if you choose to submit to him by obeying him. Read again what he says in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, it almost sounds as if God is saying he will promise reward and revenge to those who are good and those who are bad to Abraham, respectively. But actually, there's more to it than that. Because in a nutshell, what God is essentially telling Abraham is something more like this. Look, Abraham, you don't have to worry about needing to bless others so that they will bless you back. And you don't need to get even with those who end up cursing you. In other words, you don't have to worry about yourself. Don't even think about yourself at all. I got you covered. Your need for affirmation, your need for validation, your need for defending your reputation are not things that you have to get for yourselves because I will be your affirmation. I will give you recognition. I will defend your name because I am your God. That's the promise God is making to Abraham. And it makes total sense. Because how else can you really be intentional about blessing others if you're only motivated to do so because you want some blessing back to them? How can you truly be a blessing to those who are cruel and unkind and curse you when all you can think about in reaction is wanting to get even and get revenge? The answer to both questions is you can't. No, the only way you can be a blessing to others to where you don't care if they bless you The only way you can be a blessing to others who want to curse you is if you are gifted with self-forgetting humility. When you are given the blessing of self-forgetting humility. And this is what God promises will happen. If you trust in his love for you, you will be blessed with self-forgetfulness that enable you to truly focus on being a blessing to those who may bless you back as well as blessing those who already started the relationship by cursing you to your face. Because after all, <clears throat> what happens when you're preoccupied with things not going right in your life? Yourself, right? One of the things that the gift of self-forgetfulness does is that it frees you from complaining about your life because of some blessing that's missing. Because after all, isn't that what happens when you're suffering from the reality gap? You're tempted to always think of what's missing, what blessing is being deprived of you. Oh, I don't have the blessing of marriage. I don't have the blessing of children. I don't have the blessing of a great job. I don't have the blessing of a healthy, wonderful church. Could it be that the real problem of the reality gap is not so much of you lacking in blessings, but rather because of an overabundance of yourself? You know, I've been a pastor for quite some time now, and I've seen firsthand that when people finally get what they say has been missing in their life, do they shut up? Do they stop complaining? No. They keep complaining even more. In fact, they even complain of the very thing that they say was missing in their life, the, the gap that needed to be filled. Doesn't that tell you that the problem with the things that we call the reality gap is not because we're being deprived of something, but because we are depraved? That maybe because we're so filled with self-absorption? Pastor Tim Keller again says these wise words. Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it? 
Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that give them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal, went, gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise? Just to love the fact that it was done? For it is not to matter whether it was their success or your success. Not to care if they did it or you did it. You are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you're just so happy to see it. That is humility, blessed self forgetfulness I don't know about you but when I read this this is what I want and if this is what God promises me that if I submit to his authority I would want to do that but you know what I can only get there if I get to what I got in the first point to where I'm remembering I'm reminiscing and I'm convinced of God's extravagant love because that's what gets the ball rolling. In order to receive this blessing of blessed self-forgetfulness, it first needs to start with me being convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, that my God is for me, that leads to my submission, that res results in God responding with me with blessed self-forgetfulness. So it all starts here, back to point one. How do we get that? How do we receive this extravagant love, the conviction of this extravagant love for us from God? This leads me to the final point, the way to submitting to God's authority. Pick it back up with me in our passage. We're starting in verse 5. We read, And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that had acquired, they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Here is Abraham's response to God's command. He goes. He leaves his family. He leaves his friends. And he goes to what we now know is the promised land, the land of Israel. Here's what's so weird. When he finally gets there, how does he behave? He starts going from place to place, right? He's been given this massive real estate, and instead of behaving as if it's his, he starts roaming around like a homeless wanderer, like as if nothing belongs to him. He's just going from place to place. He starts where? At Shechem. He goes to the Oak of Morah. Then he goes to Bethel. Then he goes to Ai. Then he keeps going on to Negev. What is going on? Why is he behaving as if this land doesn't belong to him, even though God says through his word, it's yours. It's not until a thousand years later pass, and the author of Hebrews tells us the answer in his letter. Read it with me, starting in verse 8 of chapter 11. It says, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. So did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundation, a city designed and built by God. There it is. Why did Abraham 
go to the land that God says was his and act like it wasn't his. You know why? Because his land was not his home. Again, his land was not his home. One of the things that we learn from the biography of Abraham is that even though he had a ton of family, even though he had tons of fame, even though he had tons of fortune, it didn't fill in the gap. There was still something missing. And I think that's so penetrating for us to understand, Christian, because I imagine even though you say Jesus is your treasure, you are bitter. You are complaining because you have a reality gap, an empty space that in your mind should be filled with a person, place, or thing that's found on this earth. And yet Abraham is showing us that even though he's been to every place, even though he's had every position, even though he has people in his life, the gap is still there. Why? Because the place he yearns for cannot be found on this earth. Because what is he yearning for? He's yearning for a city made by God, but made for him and everyone else who follows his God. That's every Christian in this room. What am I talking about? I'm talking about heaven. That right there, friends, is how you cultivate the growing conviction that God loves you. Because you know that he has secured for you in Jesus what no thing, no place, no person can fill. And because you have that awareness, because you know that is true, even though you feel incomplete, you know you're truly not. Even though you feel lost, you know you are not. Even though you feel dissatisfied, you know you're not. Even though you feel deprived, you know you are not. Because you have been secured the greatest place that fills every nook and cranny of your hungry and thirsty heart you have heaven. And when you constantly develop a heavenly mindset, that stirs in you the conviction, my God really does love me. Heck yeah, I'm going to submit to his authority to where God responds, oh yeah, well now let me give you some humility. Let me give you some self-forgetfulness. So now you are able to start blessing those maybe who will bless you or those who curse you. It doesn't matter. You are here to bless because your mind is so set on heaven. But here's the question. How can you develop a heavenly mindset? Because I don't know about you. I've never been to heaven. Anyone here been to heaven before? No one. How can we yearn for a place that we've never been to, that we've never experienced, that we have no idea what it could possibly be like? The author of Hebrews says, you have to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. What is the gospel? Hold that thought for a moment. Story time. When Sarah and I were dating in our relationship to the point where we knew we were going to marry each other, one of the questions that we kept struggling with was, where are we going to live? Where are we going to go? You know, I was a pastor in Seattle at the time. She was a professional uh, event coordinator in Boston. And, you know me, I'm a type A person. I have to think through. I have to plan out everything. And we would just go crazy over this question. One week we said, oh, we're going to go to Seattle. We're going to settle in Seattle. Another week, oh, we're going to go to Boston. And then another week we said, oh, maybe we'll go to Arizona, you know, maybe Texas, you know, maybe Chicago. And, you know, I think at some point Sarah got a little frustrated. She's like, babe, look, it doesn't matter where it is. As long as we're together, that's where I want to be, right? You're like, oh, so cheesy. 
Yeah, you'll get there too if you haven't. Right? Isn't that interesting? My wife had no idea where we would end up. It was ethereal. It was vague. It didn't exist in her experience. And she knew she wanted to be there because that is where her great love was going to be. Moi, right? That's how you yearn for heaven. You have to experience a love like no other to where even if you've never been to where that love is, you yearn for it, you think about it, you crave it. This is where you're now ready to understand what the gospel is because it's when you understand the gospel that you experience this love. So now I ask, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God loved you so much that he came into the world as a human being, as Jesus Christ, so he could pay the full penalty, the full punishment for your sins, sins that should, by God's justice, require you to suffer the ultimate reality gap, deprivation of God's presence, deprivation of his love, but won't because Jesus suffered on your behalf. When that becomes not a cognitive thing, but a heartfelt thing that you receive by the power of the Spirit, oh, that creates a yearning for heaven that starts the cycle for you to be convinced that he loves you, that propels you to want to submit to his authority, that causes the receiving of the gift of blessed self-forgetfulness, humility, that therefore enables you to be a blessing to the world. It's all that beautiful symphonic process of sanctification. That's how you become a blessing to the world. But here's my question. Is that gospel truly gospel to you? Is it good news? I want to end my sermon with a few follow-up next steps. First, if you're here today and you came through these doors investigating Christianity, but today's message was that tipping point that led you up to the point where you're now ready to receive Christ, take this time, offer a prayer, submit your heart, confess your sins, and make Jesus your Lord by accepting him as your Savior and Lord and King. Secondly, Ask yourself, what reality gap are you currently suffering from? Christian, I'm specifically thinking of you. What is going on in your life to where you feel, if only I had this, if only this person was here, if only I was living in this place, if only I acquired these, what is it? What is the reality gap that is causing you to be such a nasty person to be around? Third, when you answer that, admit to God, that the real problem you have is not deprivation, but depravity. That it's not because you're missing out, but you have too much of yourself in you. And repent and go to God and ask for him to free you by making the gospel so real and so precious to you. Finally, memorize Hebrews 11, verse 10, asking for the Holy Spirit to give conviction of God's extravagant love for you in the gospel. Hebrews eleven ten. Memorize that scripture, meditate on it, and then be free from yourself. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to truly receive today's word. For fathers, who often and too many of us constantly feel that what should have been has not, and we're so angry, or we're so distant from you, and we feel so cold, thinking that you have cheated us. But, oh, Lord, the fact of the matter is, You've cheated yourself of true justice for our benefit. And Lord, you were gladly willing to do so for your glory and for the good of your people. And so, Father, I pray that every one of us in this room 
would remember that beautiful truth, and that it would stir in us a yearning for a place that we've never been, and yet a place that we know we belong, because that is where you are, our great lover. And as we do, help us to grow in conviction of your love, stimulating us to further submit to your authority so that we can be recipients of the great gift of humility, equipping us to be a blessing to the world. Help us to do these things, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.